Hello, this is Paul Fahey and Monica Pope, the host of Apostles Field Guide, a podcast where we explore the gospel of Jesus Christ and the teaching of the Catholic Church to become agents of mercy in our world. Today on the podcast, we're talking about part two of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, 2018 Pastoral Letter Against Racism, Open Wide Our Hearts. So for this episode, we're going to talk about, well, we're, we're going to finish uh, the section on due justice. We covered most of it last time, but there were some things that we wanted to talk about more. And then we're going to talk about the next section in the bishop's document, which is called love goodness. Okay, so we gotta, we're going to move here. Um, so the last two sections, I was like, we could divide them into two different episodes or we could do one. I figured we'll just talk about them and then we'll see how much content we have. And then we'll, we'll start with the first one. And if we move through it quick, we'll go to the next one and we'll see, we'll just see what happens. You mean the last two sections. Okay. Of, of this document for some yeah. reason, like we were talking about the last two episodes that we just did, but okay. Sections of this, some of this would get, um, uh, a little repetitious, you know, because we definitely touched on these, themes of personal conversion and things like that for for in our last episode um where was it can we skip the maybe we can't the whole part and it's not terribly long but where the bishops talk about their own work and (laughs) so i hope you really liked the last half of this document because I have a hard time not being cynical. <laughs> I'm gonna do my best to have to have a really positive attitude. <laughs> That's really funny because I don't really like the last half of this document. I found the first half of it to be much more powerful when I think probably for me the the most powerful part of this document was how low the bishops, the American bishops, set the bar as to what qualifies as racism. But we, we'll get through it. There's a, couple, there's a couple of strong moments here. Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. And I and I was looking back through the, 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 the section we didn't cover much at last time. And I think we covered more than we thought we did. We covered the parts about, about creation, like we covered the theological parts, and we covered the parts... At the end about listening, we just didn't go into their summaries of the Native American and African American and Hispanic experiences. Okay. I've written a note on the indigenous uh, section, and, and here's what I had written. I question the centrality of whiteness in this section, because we have to admit and acknowledge that, in fact, we hijacked the table. The table is theirs. Their story is for for this place, for, for this chunk of land floating, you know, on the planet floating through space, the indigenous person's story, their communities are actually the central ones. I certainly had noticed that a couple of, just that perspective throughout this, 
this document open wide our hearts there there's um on one hand it, it's a call to personal conversion and a call to a christian community conversion on the other hand it's hard not to see well it's maybe impossible not to do for the human person but to put your own experience in your own self as the centrality of the thing so open wide our hearts i it's possible that we could actually be asking, retitle it and asking the questions, will you open, will you consider opening your hearts to us who have done you so much harm? So beyond that, about the indigenous persons, which I had written there. I mean, I mean, even the, um, now that you point that out, even the language in this section on the Native American experience, um, they talk about European settlers and not i mean i mean we were colonizers and we took other people's land because we didn't believe them to be like worthy of it or we believed ourselves more worthy of it more worthy of it yes i noticed i noticed that uh, and certainly uh, when i shouldn't say certainly that's how those grade school history stories are told to us right People came over seeking freedom um, and met with opposition here also on this land and, and the, on this continent that they had the purest and the purest human motives. And that was just to live their lives in freedom while oppressing others. I mean, you, it, it really kind of it falls apart, you know, um, it's hard to attribute pure motives to the general you know citizens just seeking freedom but it's also hard to attribute malice so we know how the story turned out yeah we know how the story turned out it's just i mean i've had some revelation over the past few years where the stories i was taught and the histories i was taught growing up painted the united states in such rose-colored glasses right but beyond that we would call out like these history textbooks these stories i was i was reading would call out other countries for erasing the bad parts of their history right right that was seen as you know the the mark of a true tyrant state is the yeah. one who's unwilling to accept the previous generation's profound moral failure i mean this could be turkey this could be japan this could be any of these number of places that did terrible things right and that's exactly what we're doing and have been doing. There's been no, there's been no addressing that um, with cancel culture, cancel culture in general. Um, in the few discussions I've had about it, there's been this, well, what about redemption? You know, from a Christian perspective, don't we believe in mercy and redemption for somebody? But in order to be redeemed, you actually have to repent. Repent. Absolutely. And admit. And the, bishop, the bishops definitely talk about that honest reckoning um, with our history. But then yeah. they don't actually make an honest yeah. reckoning with their and, history. But they think don't actually do it. All right. So a lot about this, some uh, something about this document calls to mind for me Jesus's um, strong admonition when he was talking about this, the, the Pharisees. Um, to follow 
to do as they say and not to follow their example. And I've been having that conversation a lot for the uh, several, a couple, several times in the past few weeks. I've been talking about this document and there are Catholics who are like, yeah, the bishops have lost, they've squandered, you know, American bishops have squandered their moral uh, uh, um, authority. And um, I, first of all, I don't think that that's true for all of them. And I'm not even sure if I would say for many of them. Um, here's me trying to keep my job. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm not even sure I would say that for many of them. I would say that we certainly know that that's true for enough of them to have sullied the moral authority of the bishops, American bishops as a whole. Nevertheless, they still have official moral authority. And now we know that this document is uh, not magisterial, but pastoral. Nevertheless, I am obligated to read into these words a guidance for me, despite how poorly I feel they follow it themselves. And as a parent and mom of 10 kids, I certainly recognize the, the high probabilities of seeming like a hypocrite when teaching, you know, appropriate actions and responses. Sir, I fail at them myself on a regular basis. One of the prayers that I pray every single day, Paul, is I pray for a reparation for sins, especially the sins that I have committed that have caused my own children to lose faith in the love and the presence and the power of God. So if the bishops are failing on being a moral authority, I get that. I, to I, I totally get that. You are talking about, I'm going to go back to, um, you know, the history and the, the story being so tilted. One of the, I, I remember being a kid, Paul, and sitting in a history class, you know, it's one o'clock on Tuesday afternoon or whatever, and you now children open your history books. So I'm talking about not even sort of walking to a different place that would be history class, right? It's like, now open your history books. So everybody opens their history books. I remember sitting, I'm probably thinking fifth grade and hearing about what would I call it? Hang on, philosophy or proclamation of manifest destiny. I was in fifth grade. I couldn't have been 10 years old. And it was, you know, of course it was, it was manifest destiny. This is proposed even in this history book as some sort of grand divine scheme. It is ordained by God. It is anointed by God that we own every inch of this between here and there. And the whole time you could hear God going like, wait, no, stop. Stop. Don't do that. These are my people. Your job was to come and tell them about my son, not to use my son as a prop to steal their lives from them, which is the second part of the horror. Not only what happened to real people, but what happened to the real story of the real God. Uh, you talk about breaking the second commandment. If, if you're listening and you're thinking, wait, I got it. What? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And that certainly must have much greater, much greater implications than a few, you know, gosh darn it's uh, 
you know, as you're changing your car tire. No, kicking God's name in vain is the attachment of God's name to anything that's not holy. And it's, it's worse when it's an attachment to evil. Absolutely. When you're using a lie about God to manipulate your way to power. You manipulate your way to power, to do harm to others. Yes. That is so egregious because what is happening is, number one, people are being harmed by someone else's power trip. So not only their lives, their bodies, their minds are being harmed, but their souls are being harmed because they've attached Jesus. They've attached the name of God to this. They've washed this um, in some false religion. Then victims' souls are harmed too. Because if I come to you preaching the name of Jesus and I am destroying your life, to whom will you turn? Where can you turn if I have misrepresented God so badly to you? Where then is your rescue? It, it reminds me of what uh, two years ago in the wake of the Pennsylvania grand jury report and the coming to light of all of um, ex-Cardinal McCarrick's crimes. Pope Francis wrote a letter talking about the abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. He named two things that he said were responsible. Actually, three things. Clericalism, the abuse of power, and the abuse of conscience. Where you have this, like you said, I'm not, I'm not only uh, harming somebody physically, but I'm also harming them spiritually by attaching it to spiritual things where I'm abusing their conscience. I'm distorting their view of God and who God is by attaching it to, and these are my words, not the Pope's, but by, by attaching God to the harm that I'm doing. The catechism says, and I'd have to look at the number, I think it's 20, 24, 22, 24. You know, I'm very dyslexic with numbers, but it's somewhere in there. Paul, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says um, that, and the believer himself can give rise to atheism by presenting the gospel. I'm not going to um, be able to quote this verbatim, but essentially by presenting the gospel in a stilted and broken, self-serving way. And um, the believer can give rise to atheism. It ends by saying, when he conceals rather than reveals the true nature of God and of religion. That's in the section on the first commandment. Yes, it is. As under atheism is a violation of the first commandment. And in this sense, then, the role of Christians in breaking the first commandment by distorting God's reputation. Absolutely. By distorting God's reputation, by telling, not not the story, by telling a lie and attaching God to it. So so in the catechism, that responsibility, the, so the believer himself can give rise to atheism. You know, and you've heard me say it, I am done. I am so over bemoaning the, the moral collapse of our country and the moral, the, 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 the lack of the, the dissolution of moral fiber and the culture crashing down around us. I'm done bemoaning it. 
and blaming it on the other guy. The believer himself has given rise to this. That's me. All of my failures, which goes back to, as I had shared with you a few minutes ago, I pray every single morning for reparation of the sins that I have committed that have caused especially my children to not believe in the goodness of God. I know that I'm one of the believers who has given rise to other people's unbelief because I fail at it. So when we talk about the bishops, you know, their moral authority, and they make these proposals, and perhaps they fail at some of this themselves or seem less than stellar, um, certainly not giving them any mileage on, on corruption and sexual abuse scandals or anything. I'm just talking about like being just sort of like low level, not great at this. I, I mean, I certainly, I get that. I do. Um, and, and that's a really difficult place for, for regular Catholics to be in where you have to, you have to recognize that this person in authority over me is legitimate, that God put them there, and that God can and does use them to speak God's word, but that they're also not just, you know, sinners like the rest of us. I mean, they're always sinners like the rest of us, but in some cases they're, like you said, low-level, simply not good at leading, or in some cases, straight-up corrupt, or, or in some cases, abusers themselves. So how do you reconcile that? And at least for me, it's because I, I haven't yet, uh, but in my mind, I've been able to, I've been able to to recognize that my faith isn't in in the bishops. It's in trust that in God's providence and power that He's using these bishops, even even the straight up corrupt and evil ones, to advance His church. That there will be greater good in some way. Anyways, that's a that's a really hard thing to wrestle with. It's a really hard thing to say. God put this person in real authority to speak about matters of faith and morals, to govern me. Even if. Even if they're significantly more flawed than I am. Yeah, significantly more flawed. So uh, the Pennsylvania grand jury report was about 1,200 pages, and I read 420 pages of it and then couldn't read any more. clicked it off the screen and said uh, that that's enough. I can't, I can't read anymore. There's no, there's no place, you know, that our Pope is, is, is such a big promoter of listening to other people's stories and, and really, you know, opening, opening wider hearts, right? The, the document here, open your hearts and make room for other people. It's not, I, cu- I could not make room for any more of the details. It was really, really quite awful. Um, the question, though, you know, how can I follow these guys um, who are sometimes more significant, significantly flawed than, you know, again, I mean, it was asked of Jesus. They asked the same thing. I mean, they're like, look at these guys. The Pharisees are hypocrites. They're whitewashed yep. tombs, a brood right. of vipers. Yeah. Jesus was not kind at all to and he didn't make any apologetic for them whatsoever he completely denounced their corruption and said do what they tell you to do don't follow their example i do thank god that we have some bishops that exude 
integrity. Integrity meaning that they are who they are through the whole fiber of their being. Um, There's no duplicity in them. No duplicity in them. Nathaniel, yeah, this man is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. I believe that Pope Francis is one of those guys. There's no duplicity in him. Um, And you know, uh, for any of our readers, that I had gone through a couple of years of, uh, of struggle with him, thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm so tired of, of, re- of translating and interpreting this goofy thing that you said to the rest of my Catholic friends here. I'm so tired of making apologetic for you. And so I've come back to the, I've come back to the place where I started with him. And that is, this is a man of integrity. He is becoming in whom he says he professes to believe. Um, he's another, as, as, our, as all of us are baptized to be, he is another Christ in the world. Yeah, I trust him. There's a lot of them that, that I don't trust. And that trust, Paul, that the tearing of the fiber of trust, certainly Jesus knows how utterly damaging that is to his people also. I mean, because he also said to them, and, you know, God help you if you're one of the people who caused these, these little ones to fall away or to sin. You're going to wish that you were thrown in the lake with a millstone around your neck. This will not be easy for anyone whose example or teaching is leading the people of God away from the heart of God. Yeah. You know, okay, so we're Apostles Field Guide, our podcast, and I think we've gone far afield here. We certainly can come back to this document, uh, Open Wide Our Heart. We were going to look at love, goodness. I had underlined some things, and we talked about some of this last time. Let's get back to sort of the investigation of racism in the Catholic community or in Monica, the Catholic person, um, as the bishops are proposing so, so we start with, with scripture again. We, they, the, the bishops open this section with scripture and talk about the fruit of the spirit being um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They propose another list then and says, you know, can we should examine our own hearts to see if these fruits are really there or if. Instead of the fruits of the spirit, there are attitudes of mistrust, impatience, anger, distress, discomfort, or rancor. So they propose this opposite list from the fruits of the spirit. The, the, the bishops are challenging each of us, me, to examine my heart for any of these. And in the past few weeks, in the past month or so, since we've been um, talking about this doc and doc, this document, reading it, and then praying into it, I would say to you of the bishop's list, mistrust and discomfort are the two moments that stand out the most to me. I, I think, again, this shows the really low bar that the bishops yeah. are, are proposing for what is racism. I mean, you can say anger, and rancor, okay, yeah, that's racist. Right. Like, yeah. but impatience, discomfort is very, 
a very, very wide net and I'm caught in it. It definitely, if I'm um, examine our conscience, they say, when I examine mine, I definitely see mistrust for me, uh, mistrust and discomfort. And they go on to talk about, as we see people as them and, and us, every time that I do that, every time I see a division of persons, them and us, it is a failure to love. Which is really strong language. Whenever we see people as them and others as us, we fail to love, period. I, I sat with this list too, and it was discomfort that rose to the top, but tied in with seeing other groups of people for race or otherwise as the other. Yes. For me, I, I live in a very racially diverse area, and I was surprised to see how regularly uh, mistrust and discomfort occur. Um, not only occur, but I actually prepare for them. I, I, I recognize in myself that it actually sort of telegraph, you know, they, they, that, that saying like, you know, you telegraph the punch. I, I'm, 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 or I'm telegraphing the mistrust and this discomfort specifically about race, about the quote, other person's race. So I, I have to own that. My experience of late also, I'm, I'm going to try and break it down even a little bit more. My experience lately, so, so this is sort of so much, you know, Monica centrality, right? The discomfort today, actually, I can identify it as not merely discomfort with your race, but discomfort with your potential um, anger level. How mad are you? persons of color, how angry are you? And I've noticed that I'm not asking the question that the bishop is, that the bishops are challenging me to ask or wanting to ask the question like, I, what is your story? I wonder what your story is. I wonder what your experience has been. I would love to hear that someday. Well, the only thing I can say right now to is number one, I'm becoming so aware of that. And number two, I'm bringing prayer. my prayer. I think I had told you early on before COVID started during Lent, at the beginning of Lent, I was having a, just this profound movement by God to continually pray. Of course, it's a Lenten Psalm, but 51 created me a clean heart, oh God. And as I was praying that the Lord just kept calling me to that request that entreaty to him created me a clean heart oh god and i'm like as i'm praying it i'm like why do you want me to keep praying this and and i had this sense like you're really going to do something here and it was also a sense of um oh a little anxiety like oh lord what are you going to show me now my white privilege my racism and my white centrality are the things that it became very clear that that's what the Lord was preparing me to see by praying that psalm. Um, I, I think I would add to this list uh, that, the, that the bishops have here. And I think I would add, along with mistrust and impatience and, and discomfort, etc., I think I would add ignorance. Mm. I think that's where I think that's where uh, I've 
I feel. I like what you said, how, like, it's not just white centrality, it's Monica centrality. Yes. I think that's the big thing for me. It's ignorance of, it's an ignorance that someone else has experiences, even if they're in my own community, very different than mine. So the difference then between culpable ignorance and invincible ignorance is huge. I don't know what I don't know. But if I'm trying to tell you, Paul, there's something that you don't know. And and I want to share this with you. I want to open your mind to understanding this. And you have obstinance. You obstinately refuse to know. That's a sin. And it's also a prison. Jesus promised that the truth will set us free. And so not only am I, when I'm culpably, obstinately ignorant, am I denying the truth, but I'm also denying the freedom that would come with it. Um, well, I think that all these things in, in this very first paragraph of, of love goodness, so the paragraph starts, most people would not consider themselves racist. Yes. And I would, I, and I read that as thereby implying, but most people are indeed racist. And throughout, you know, the the preceding 16 pages of this document, um, the bishops more than imply that. Yeah. But then, but when you look at this list at the end of this paragraph, attitudes of mistrust, impatience, anger, distress, discomfort, rancor, these aren't things someone's necessarily culpable of either. It may not be my fault that I feel mistrust towards a group of people if, as the bishops talked about earlier, the community and the family that I grew up with all had mistrust towards this group of people. I'm not culpable for that mistrust yet, which doesn't make the mistrust right. But the call is, like you said, am I open to hearing something different and to not be obstinate before hearing something different? So am I going to stay imprisoned in my mistrust or am I willing to maybe recognize that I have this mistrust in the first place? And I would say the same for the rest of this list except maybe rancor that's kind of a strong word but it is it is a strong word and yet i'm going to say that i have heard in conversations that i'm having now i hear rancor coming from um white people when i've pushed a little and said you know but the bishops have really encouraged us to examine our own hearts You push a little bit, and some responses are rancorous, at least approaching it. So moving on here, the bishops remind us that Jesus is greatest. uh, When he's asked, he answers that the greatest commandment is to love your God with your whole heart, soul, and your mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The bishops charge us with this, that the command of love can never live and let others be so the idea that the command of love can't include you do you and i'll stay remain me and my my tight little thinking here okay the bishops say to us that the command of love requires us this sounds so much like pope francis requires us to make room for others in our hearts It means that we are indeed our brother's keeper. To make room for others in our hearts. I can't make room for others. If I refuse to hear them, I'm clearly not making room for them. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to, let's see, we'll move on here. 
Well, I think there's a couple paragraphs down. Um, yes. So the next paragraph is a really beautiful reflection on how the cross is an undoing of the sin of Cain. Violence against a brother uh, was nothing but division and how the cross brings everyone together. And in the next paragraph, it says, uh, once we have come to the conviction that one died for all and not just for ourselves, then the love of Christ impels us to see others as our brothers and sisters. I really liked that. That's a quote from, from Pope Benedict. I think that shows the, and we talked about this before in the last episode, the, the evil that is racism because yeah. through Christ, because he died for all, because he has made us all brothers and sisters. There's this unity then amongst Christians that's greater than the unity amongst God's people in general, right? Um, we can all be, all human beings can call, can call God Father because he's their creator. But Christians can call, can call God Father in a more intimate way because through baptism we have been made another Christ. Therefore, all of us are brothers and sisters, because in baptism, we participate in Christ's death for all of us. So amongst Christians, the sin of racism, I would say, is especially pervasive, because the unity of, amongst Christians is supposed to be so much greater even than the unity amongst all people. So when you say especially pervasive, you mean that we are uh, tend toward it more or that it is more destructive oh sorry i meant pernicious pernicious okay so for the christian the sin of racism is especially more pernicious because you and i and the christian community have been baptized as other christ we uh, so we not only call god our father we call jesus our brother um okay uh, yeah we're gonna wrap this up uh and we, we will finish the document next week with the section, Walk Humbly with God. And, and yeah, we can end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for who you are and how good you are. We thank you for how good you are to us and your persistent love for us. Father, we ask you to please send down your Holy Spirit upon each one of us and on and on the whole church and especially the church of the united states holy spirit we ask for your healing from the sin of racism we ask for your transformations that we may have uh, hearts more like the heart of christ and minds more like the mind of christ to be able to to pursue justice and to do goodness and uh, to bring about a society that recognizes the, the dignity uh, of all persons and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Apostles Field Guide. This podcast is a production of Where Peter Is at wherepeteris.com. Our theme music, Tilting at Windmills, is composed by Mark Pope. You can follow us on Twitter at AFG underscore podcast or email us at apostlesfieldguide at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.